0: evening keith burns uh keith i'll get to you in just a moment how's how you doing out there in nebraska hey everybody um we'll, we'll let the people come in a little bit um uh, you know folks we just got to remember that um there's so much uh there's so much going on around the world right now we're the united states we've got our own own problems here we're burning up out west in the south southwest uh, those folks out there, oh my gosh, you got a feel for those people. And Keith's right there in the middle of it. And we're going to get into this tonight because he's got a lot of growers that are in this region of really severe droughty type weather. So we'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, keep Ukraine on your minds. Um, you know, I mean, Putin is just, he's just absolutely slow playing that. It's just, he's just slow death in It's just amazing what, what, what's happening. So, Keep all those folks in your mind. Um, giddy up, let's go. We got Keith Burns. Keith, how are you doing
1: this evening? I'm doing good, Rick. Glad to join you. Hey, hey everybody out there. Good. Hey,
0: thanks for coming on with us tonight. We appreciate it. Uh, Keith, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody. This is the first question. Uh, what's on your mind right now? It, it, it could be anything. It could have been, uh, I know you visited Indiana. Uh, just tell us what's on your mind right now.
1: Well, probably right now, it's just, you know, we're, we're kind of right in the middle of the busiest season for getting cover crop seed out the door as guys are either starting harvest or getting ready to start harvest. Uh, Lots of guys are just looking to bring their seed in, get the seed uh, that they want to plant in. So very busy right now. So, uh, you know, it would be things around that. Uh, Some of it's logistical. Can we find the trucks to get the stuff out of here? Can we find the trucks to bring in the seed that I've got bought? And then some of it is around supply chain, you know, big surprise there. The first time anybody's heard that this year. Yeah. But you know, it's just, it's getting harder and harder to find, find the seed. And uh, we can probably talk about that in a little bit more detail later, but, but that's, that's kind of what's kind of on my mind. And then, you know, you brought up the Ukraine, Rick, and you know that 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 does you know really weigh heavy on me too. And just the world situation. Uh, watched the video the other day from from a guy named Peter Zihan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or watched no. any of his stuff. I no. might post I might post that link later on here. Yeah, let's do that. Um, it was it was really really good. It's called Agriculture at the End of the World, and you know he basically just kind of gives a world analysis of where everybody's at agriculturally. It's kind of depressing. Yeah. But Europe's, Europe's burning up. Yeah. And, and you know, just again, the whole world supply chain thing, the, the Russian Ukraine war, you know, everything going on in China. Uh, so, in spite of all of the warts and hickeys that we've got here in the United States, there's absolutely no better place to be. Oh, and yeah. I'm really, I'm still proud of our country. And uh, still willing to really work hard at trying to make it even better.
0: That's great. Uh, hey, Rachel, if you're there, could you type this in? What, what was the gentleman's name again, Keith? Peter,
1: Peter Zihan. I'll, I'll try to look up his name and people can just Google the, you know, okay him because he's got a number of talks this particular talk that i watched he was delivering it to actually the iowa swine producers so he talks to a lot of agricultural groups oh okay Uh, i also heard him at we went to a farm credit deal and he was one of the speakers that they had there as well so he's he he's he can speak to world events but from an agricultural perspective which which is cool
0: that's cool Well, folks, don't forget, you know, if you want to ask questions to Keith, I mean, this is the man. I mean, we're talking one of the premier, if not the premier cover crop seed source in the United States right here on the podcast. So if you've got a question, I mean, Keith has got every he could answer just about anything. If he doesn't know the answer, he'll call you tomorrow with the answer. So let's get started here, Keith. Let's go back. Um, You know, what? What in the world possessed you to start a cover crop company in in Nebraska?
1: <laughs> right. Well, the Nebraska part's easy. That's where we were. <laughs> <You know
0: that>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Touche. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, the other part's a little more complicated. So my brother and I started the business, but. Uh we grew up on the farm, so we're still living here on our family farm, been in the family for, you know, over a hundred years, like I'm sure you know yours and many of the listeners here uh have have been in the family for a long time. So our roots run really deep here. Uh we, you know, we grew up farming here. I actually went away and I taught school for 10 years, uh, taught agriculture and computers and technology, then came back wow. to the farm. Brian started farming right out of college. Uh in in 1998 uh, dad was getting ready to retire so i came back to join in kind of the farming operation and and he Brian had already been uh doing a lot of experimentation with no till and you know really liking what he saw so when i came back we pretty well switched everything over to no till and so for the next 10 years we really were active in the no till organizations you know went to the national no till conferences no till yeah. on the plains and you know so we we knew Gabe Brown and all these guys way before we ever started green cover because of our connections through the, through the no-till organizations. Well, in 2006, uh, a man by the name of Adamir Caligari from Brazil came over and he spoke at no-till in the plains uh, there in Salina, Kansas. And he was showing pictures and talking about this crazy thing that these guys in Brazil were doing called multi-species cover crop mixes. Okay. Because prior to that, you know, any, anybody that uh, we had talked to that was doing cover crops, you know, they'd maybe use a few radishes or a clover, maybe sorghum sedan. Uh, yeah. Maybe they'd go way out on a limb and do oats and peas or something. But nobody was doing these crazy 8, 10, 12, 14-way mixes. Um, and so he was showing those pictures. And, and everybody was like, oh, man, that, that's really cool. We should, we should try that. Well, most of us, you know, talk is pretty cheap. But Gabe Brown and Jay Fuhrer, they took that concept and they put it into action in the summer of 2006. This was February, uh, January of 2006. So in Burley County, in the middle of one of the driest years that they had ever had, uh, they, they planted these plots of cover crops and they had these monoculture strips and then they planted this big diverse mix. And many of the listeners here, I'm sure have probably seen these pictures. They're really famous pictures. Everything in a monoculture strip just burned up. It just fried. It was brown. It was crispy. Yeah. Where they had that blend, that, that 10, 12 way blend. I mean, it wasn't beautiful, but it was pretty darn impressive for having like three inches of rain the whole year. And so that demonstrated the power of diversity and the power of the mix. Basically, it was demonstrating exactly what Adam here was showing us that the guys in Brazil are finding. Now, they're not in drought situations, but they were still seeing these amazing synergistic benefits of having these together. So we saw that and then we did get inspired. And so the the thing though, in our minds is still, it's going to use too much moisture because in our area, in a lot of the area here, the reason that we can grow dry land corn is because we're following wheat stubble. We're planting wheat stubble. And then we're kind of following that wheat stubble, if you will, for almost a whole year, you know, you harvest the wheat in July and you're not planting your corn till May of the next year. Yeah. And, and you're building up that moisture profile to plant corn. And so our concern was, are we going to pull too much moisture out of that wheat stubble? And is it going to hurt the corn? So we wanted to test this theory. So we applied for a SARA grant, Sustainable Ag Research Education. It was a small grant at the time. It was like five, $6,000. But basically it allowed us to buy moisture sensors. And so we put moisture sensors. So we planted about 30 different cover crops. And monoculture strips and then several different mix combinations and we had moisture sensors at one foot two foot and three foot and then we monitored those all through the summer they went in in july and we read them all the way through november and we were able to track that moisture now this was in 2008 we actually had some decent summer moisture in 2008 and so you could track that you could you could see you know the moisture usage go down and you get a rainfall event and then those things would shoot back up so we monitored that all the way through, pulled all the data out and then started analyzing it. And what we saw across the board, it didn't matter if it was vetch or cowpeas or oats or rye, anything planted in a monoculture used quite a bit of water. Hmm. The mixes were much, much, much more efficient in their water use. And you could just see it on the chart. You can see it on the graphs. And it's exactly what Gabe and Jay showed up in Burley County a couple of years before that, where the monocultures—they they used the moisture and they—and it just burned up. Yeah. The mix kept growing; it kept going. And so, when we saw that, it was pretty stunning uh, to because everything looked pretty good because we had the moisture, but because yeah. we could read the charts, we saw, hey, we must have a lot more moisture here where this mix was because it didn't use near as much. So that in combination with how well the cattle did cuz we it was on an 80 and so we planted the rest of the 80 to you know all the leftover seed that mix and the cattle came off that just fat and happy and it was like oh this is incredible you know and so once we kind of got in our heads that maybe the moisture concern wasn't as big a deal as we thought particularly if we use a diverse mix and the third thing was it was hard to find that seed you know, you can't just go down to the co-op and say, you know, I want these 30 different species of cover crops. Right. And so right. we, we determined that there was an opportunity perhaps to try to sell some of this stuff. We had no idea what we were doing, uh, but that didn't stop us. We just kind of jumped in. But, but because of what we saw from the very beginning, we have stressed the diverse mixture whenever possible, whenever practical and whenever it makes sense that's what we try to get people to do is a diverse mix. Now, if you're planting a cover crop October 20th in Nebraska, we're going to tell you to plant cereal rye. Yeah. There's no point in planting a diverse mix then. Too yeah. late. But if you're planting the July 20th or even August 20th and you just plant sorghum sedan, well you just wasted a great opportunity to do something fantastic for your soil right. and, and and you drop the ball if you're just planting a single species there. Right. So right. that's kind of how we got started. Uh, you know, we just started out as my brother and I, and a couple of the kids and uh, just started out in the back of our shop and we sold enough seed to cover about a thousand acres that first year. So 2009 was the first year that we sold any seed and we'll see how this year goes. We're, we're ahead of last year by quite a bit, but last year we, we sold enough seed to cover, uh, over a million acres.
0: Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Uh, That's uh, great. Congratulations. That's that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Let's go back just a moment here. We've got we had a comment. Um, Boy, I'm not going to get this name right. I I apologize. I'm not even going to try to say it. I can't I can't do it. But uh, as far as I know, there are 840 no till farmers in Ukraine. I know at least 50 who've been no till with cover crops for over five years now see that's something i didn't know i did not i was not aware that i thought i was always told ukraine is this this awesome dirt that's moldboard plowed and and there's not a lot of respect given to the soil but th- this is exactly wrong so that's great
1: yeah i mean it's you know like here in the here in our area you know depends on which area you go to some places they do so much tillage you would look at that and if you judge the entire country by that you go Man, those guys are terrible farmers. Yeah, you know. So there's 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 good practitioners everywhere. I've actually done a couple of webinars fairly recently for farmers in the Ukraine. Uh, Steve Groff has helped do one too. Uh, again, back when we were doing a lot of work with the no-till organizations, uh, there was this lady uh, Nila, uh, who was a, an American citizen but of Ukrainian descent. And so she was a translator and a, an ambassador for a large farming operation in the Ukraine. She'd bring tour groups over. She'd go to all of the conferences, get, gather that information and take it back. And so she's really been working very diligently to try to help get information back to the folks in the Ukraine. And I've actually been trying to get a load of seed out of the Ukraine, uh, some facelia seed from a farmer that, that she introduced me to, and, and we would love to buy that. They can't get it out. You know, uh-huh. almost everything went out through the port of Odessa and that's blockaded by the Russians. So they can't do that. So they got to go West overland into Poland and you know, all the, all the, you know, the their train tracks are being bombed and uh, all of the trucks are being used in the war effort. And so, I mean, I really feel bad for those guys because they've got seed in the shed. Oh boy. They got nowhere to take it. And you've got
0: customers that would love to have it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah. anytime that I think I've got logistics and supply chain issues, all you got to do is think about that a little bit. And it's like, yeah, I don't have it. So <laughs> no. we're in pretty good shape, actually.
0: We, we usually don't have it near as bad as we think we do. Yeah. Like, so.
1: yeah. And,
0: and I apologize. I didn't want to try to butcher your name, I apologize, but I, I don't even want to try. So um, thank you for that comment. I was unaware of that, but thank you for that. That's awesome. So let's go back to your story, Keith, on you know, everything. What if you hadn't gone to no till on the plains that year? You know, yeah, isn't that, yeah. Isn't that crazy.
1: It is, it is. And, and well, I, I just, you know, I was in Indiana, uh, the last several days and it was with Ray Ward and, uh, Ray Ward, uh, we were just talking about this because Ray. I told Ray, I said, one of the things I respect the most about you, Ray, and, and, you know, I mean, he's got a vast wealth of knowledge about soils and soil testing, but what I respect most about Ray is that he's not afraid to say, you know what, I used to think this way, but now I've learned new information, and I don't think that way anymore. Now I think this way, because I think in the early days, he was kind of a little bit of a poo-pooer of soil health and some of the biological aspects and things like that. Boy, no more. He's, he's, and, and he also has his own farm. So he sees these things on his own farm. But, but yeah. Ray was one of the guys in 2006, that, that, that Burley County, North Dakota experiment that, that Gabe and Jay did. He was one of the guys that went there on the bus trip. And so, and he, I've heard him tell this story multiple times of, of just describing it. And, and, and I told Ray that I quote him saying this sometimes because what he says is, then I saw that mix, and that was the damnedest thing I'd ever seen. That was just the <laughs> damnedest thing I'd ever seen. And and he, he still says, if he, if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed. It. And we yeah. were just talking again about how each of those little single events were so influential in the start of this movement. You know, Adamir coming over. You know, yeah. Gabe and, and, and Jay not being afraid to take that step and do that experiment. You know, Ray going up and actually seeing it. And then coming back and telling the rest of us about this is a real deal, you know, this really happened. So, yeah, just every one of those things, you know, God just orchestrates these. And then, you know, you're right, timing is everything. And when we got into this in 2009, it was kind of right at the beginning of, of you know, NRCS's, you know, secrets of the soil and the whole soil health campaign. I mean, we really didn't have to do much advertising or marketing, you know, the first 10 years because, You know they were doing this whole campaign and good for them you know for doing that but it was uh you know there was just a lot of publicity around that topic
0: yeah well that yeah see and all that you know that and look where we've come so quickly now from from those two you know that leadership there of going out and trying this and now it's just it's just exploded um Mm -hmm. So now I want to go into your, your company a little bit now. You've got you guys developed this calculator, and this thing is awesome. And you you can go in free of charge, yep. and you can build a a cocktail or a mix or whatever you whatever you want to call it, and and go in deeper. I mean, tell us what all this thing does. I mean, it carbon to nitrogen ratio. I mean, it's it's incredible. And I, and I've used this a lot, and then. Once you use it and you get familiar with it, you don't have to come back to it that often. And I assume that's what your goal was. It was to
1: educate us to where
0: yeah. at one point we don't need it.
1: Yeah. So, so that kind of started out, you know, after we were doing, you know, these diverse mixes for a couple of years, you know, it, it kind of got to the point of, okay, how do we build the mix sheet so I can give it to my teenage boys
0: to yeah. Go out there and
1: pull the right seeds to put in the mix and make it right. Mix yeah. up. So I, you know, I I was a tech guy in in school. I taught some IT classes, and so I just started with an Excel spreadsheet and started building it out, and 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 it was just strictly for internal use. And you know, I'd have all of the different choices, and I, you know, I would okay, you know, we're going to have all our legumes up here, our grasses, our brassicas, and our broadleaves because we really did want to make sure we had representation from each of those different functional groups. Yeah. And so I had all that in there and, you know, you could put the seeding right in and then the acres, and then, you know, over here, it would spit out a sheet that would give you the, the, the recipe or the mix sheet for what you needed to do. And so that's how it started. It was just simply an internal use type thing. I kept adding things to it. And I was thinking, you know, this could be kind of a cool thing if I could get my customers to do this themselves. Well, yeah. And, 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 but I thought, well, it's on an Excel spreadsheet though. What do I do? Then, then a couple of years later, I found this cool little app out on the internet. Uh, it was called spreadsheet converter. and It would basically take an Excel spreadsheet and I don't know how it did it, but it would turn it into an HTML document. Oh and really? So put that thing out on the internet and all of the spreadsheet you couldn't, I could open up certain cells that you could edit. You could type in how many pounds you wanted and different things. Yeah, you couldn't change the formulas because it was an HTML document, but it was a cool little deal. And so I put that out there. It was pretty basic, but every year I just added new things to it, like I, you know, carbon nitrogen ratio and where you could select your rainfall. Then that rainfall would would adjust the suggested seeding rates. And then, well, let's do a let's do a nitrogen calculation prediction, and let's do a you know, how winter hardy is this? How frost tolerant is this? How good is this going to be for grazing? And, and every year I just kept adding new things. And some of it were things that I thought of. Some of it were what customers said, hey, can you add this in? This would be pretty cool. You know, seeds per acre, you know, all those sorts of things. But it always, from the very beginning, it would tell you exactly what that mix would cost. And that's pretty important because it doesn't matter. You can build the best mix in the world But if your budget for that mix is 25 bucks and that's a $70 mix, that's not a good mix for you. Not gonna fit the goals that you have for yourself. And so then you have to go back and you can change the rates or change the species and try to get that price point back down to to something that you're comfortable with. So we did that for a few years. And then I started running out of, I, I had plenty of ideas but I was running out of things that I could do on a spreadsheet. So we knew we had to take it to computer code and actually write it as a program and not just as a big right. spreadsheet. And so my son, Simeon, actually does all of the coding and the programming on that. So uh, well, good for little did I know that we had the resources in-house to do that, but it's worked out really well and we've added lots of features to it. And from the beginning, I've, I've been pretty adamant that you know I want those resources to be available free of charge. I know that we have people that use that and take it into our competitors and say, can you build us this mix? Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah. We don't have seed for everybody anyway. And if we can kind of push some of these other companies along doing the diversity route, uh, I'm okay with that.
0: Oh, I applaud you because see, that's the exact approach you can because you know how important it is to have covers on every acre out there. Thank you for, for saying that. That that's That's commendable. Thank you. Um, we've got a, uh, we've got Gregory here from, uh, Arkansas, Northeast Arkansas. I've been using wheat as a cover crop for 10 years for wind erosion. Really haven't seen any improvement in soil structure. Haney test shows to use a 50-50 grass and legume. I plant cover crop after cotton in November. Any suggestions on covers in Northeast Arkansas?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing that I would say there, Gregory, is is I would I would start using cereal rye instead of wheat for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's going to have twice the root system, and your soil structure is going to be built largely through the roots of those plants and and the root exudates that those things are pumping out. And so, you know, wheat has been bred over the years to be high yield in a high input environment. And when it goes into a low input environment, which most cover crops are, it just doesn't do as well, and yeah. part of it's because it doesn't have near as much root system as cereal rye. So I would switch to cereal rye, and uh, get that in there as the base. The other thing, cereal rye, it's an incredible plant. It will germinate at 34 degrees. N- no other plant does that. It germinates in that cold of soils, and if it's 38 degrees and the sun is shining, that thing will be photosynthesizing. Now th- those other plants don't do that, but but that rye will stay green. And down in down in Arkansas, you're going to have most of the winter that you're yeah. going to be above 38 for your highs. That rye is not going to grow fast because you got short days and not not a lot of growing degree days. But they're going to be there for cereal rye, yeah. And and so you're going to get a lot more activity through the winter. And then and then I would you know again you want to get some diversity out there with that. You'll want some form of a legume. You know whether it's a, a You know, crimson clover should work really well down there. Balanza clover could, winter peas, hairy vetch. You want some sort of cold-tolerant legume, and it doesn't have to be a lot. Legumes are expensive. It can add a lot to the cost, but it doesn't have to be 50% legumes. Uh, It it can be, you know, three pounds, five pounds or something like that, but but, start introducing that diversity. And then I think you want a deep tap-rooted crop, you know, like a radish or a rapeseed or mm-hmm. a mustard or something like that to get more of that, that uh, taproot driving down into the soil and uh, to, to get the benefits. And, you know, those are small seeded. One to two pounds of those is going to be plenty. And then depending on when you get that planted, it would be nice to have another broadleaf plant in there. Um, not a lot of those broadleaf plants are very cold hardy as part of the problem you know sunflowers and buckwheat are are fantastic cover crops but you know buckwheat dies at the first frost sunflowers are going to die at about 28. Um, safflower could be a possibility of, of getting something that would live until you drop to the low 20s so th- those would just be a few suggestions I would have. And the other thing is, you don't have to try it on the whole farm. You know, I, I, would, diverse, I, I would I would would do rye on the whole farm right away because we just love rye and, and what we've seen with that. That right there will change a lot. But if you're a little hesitant or the price point maybe is a, a more higher than what you thought, try it on 10 acres, 20 acres. It, you know, you can learn as much on 10 acres as you can on the whole farm if you spend the time walking through that 10 acres and just being students of the plants and really observing what is doing well and, and spend time out there with a shovel and, and do root digs. And and, and you'll be surprised uh, at how you see the soil starting to develop around those diversity of roots and not not just a single species like wheat.
0: Go to town. Well, get what, a, would
1: what would you do, Rick?
0: Yeah, I, I would do exactly the same. Now, I always like to ask up front, what is the termination method here? Because that's critical. Yeah. if it's chemistry then then throw the kitchen sink at it but if you're mechanical we got to be a little more careful here so but yeah I wouldn't have changed anything there but I'll tell you I mean there's two things I love to do keith and you got to have a spade and you go out and you start digging first so dig in your fields now where you've had the wheat look at your aggregate stability how how, how much depth do you have with that aggregate stability that's number one number two go to town buy a a six inch pvc coupler and pound it in the ground and pour water in and time it and see how long it goes through run that cereal rye with that diverse mix and do it again next year you're going to see huge differences guaranteed and those are easy tests to run i mean that's all you know we everybody's getting caught up on these carbon markets and how are we going to do this there's two little simple tests i just described that can tell you if you're doing it or not
1: yeah yeah, everybody should be doing infiltration because it's essentially free to do. It just takes yeah. a little time, but it, if you, you don't can...
0: have soil health, you don't have infiltration.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and sure. if you don't have infiltration, you're not gonna have soil health too.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. So, you know, we, we've gotta always be thinking that the soil is a living, breathing organism. I mean, it's just like a big giant lung it's exhaling carbon dioxide and it's inhaling oxygen so we've got to get as much photosynthesis and sugar and oxygen pumped into that ground as possible and we can do all that through covers so uh, yeah we could talk about like this all night long we're all in agreement but but you've got the company that can supply us these these species so and that's another thing i love about your company keith i don't know how many I mean, what are you up to? 200 plus species now you can offer? I mean, it's
1: incredible. Well, it's probably not quite that many, but somewhere between 120 and 150. And, <laughs> and we're getting, you know, we're, we're really building out how many of the different perennials we have now. Mostly we started with the annuals. We're starting to get more perennials, starting to kind of live in that world a little bit more. But, you know, we've gone out and, and look for, you know, if a customer says, hey, do you have this? And if I don't have it, I, I kind of, I'm a little competitive. I don't have it I'm thinking how comes I don't have that maybe I should have that so then yeah. we'll go out and try to find it
0: yeah yeah
1: well you know
0: well we got another we got another question here uh this is from Jeremy Keith how much has the multi-species cover crop after wheat taken off in Nebraska wait a minute How me read that again how much has the multi-species cover crop after wheat taken off in, oh, how much much, uh, has it been adopted, I guess? And in real world, does it always increase the next corn crop?
1: Yeah, great question, Jeremy. So, you know, the conundrum in Nebraska and in a lot of areas is there's just not near as much wheat as there used to be. And as you go east and south where there is wheat, they will a lot of times try to double crop soybeans. And you know, I don't blame them. You know, there's there's uh, there's some money to be made there. Now I think Dave Brandt calls them greedy beans because because you're you know the farmers being greedy trying to take that next cash crop, where Dave's you know, theory, and, and Dave is at a way higher productivity environment than we are here, but he's willing to forgo 20 bushel beans because he knows that he can grow probably $300 worth of nutrients for his next corn crop. And so yeah. he sees more return from doing the cover crop. So, so that, you know, in the Eastern side, unfortunately, there's just not very much wheat. I would say that the guys in rainfall environments of 26, 27 and above, so that'd be like the Eastern third of our state. If they're not doing double crop soybeans, a lot of them are doing a cover crop of some kind after wheat. As you move west and it gets drier, it's harder and harder to talk these guys into doing it. And and, and again, I, I get it. I understand it's been dry. It continues to be dry. It's, it's far, far easier to get the guys who have cattle to do it because they're looking at the price of hay. They're looking at if I can plant $30 worth of seed and I can grow three tons of forage for my animals and that forage is worth $125 a ton. Well, that math is pretty easy to do. Yeah. So those guys, they will do it pretty regularly. The guys without cattle, again, it's a little harder to convince them of the all of those other benefits. Because if you don't understand the biological benefits, you know, that that, that microbiome brings to your system, if if that because you can't see it, you know, it's oftentimes just ignored. You know, unless yeah, yeah. unless you go to some of these events or you listen to people talk, you know, you watch the YouTube things to to, to really get a grasp on that. Uh, it's pretty easy just to, to think, you know what, I got this beautiful wheat stubble. I've sprayed it three times. I've kept my weeds killed. I'm good to go. We used to think that way, too. We used to think yeah. that was a beautiful looking field when you had no weeds growing out there. You know, now we think that's ugly as heck because you see it as a wasted opportunity. All that sunlight, I mean, think about the growing degree days in July, August, and September that are completely wasted on on bare wheat stubble that could be put to use. So, so (laughs) Jeremy, again, to to answer your question, it it has been slow. Part of it's because there is not near as much wheat as there used to be, and part of it is because it's still a pretty new concept to a lot of these guys. The guys with regenerative mindsets, no problem. They're doing it until they get to that point. If they're more of a conventional mindset, uh, a lot of times they're going to do it if they're in an equip program or they have a CSP contract or something like that. Now the hope is they see enough benefits that once their contract expires, they're going to go, Hey, you know what? My ground was so much more mellow after I had that cover crop. I need to do that again. Yeah. That's the hope.
0: Well, and you know, I mean, I'm in the Midwest and and we're inherently pretty good soils. We get 30, 34, 35 inches of rain. I mean, it's a whole different ball game than what you're talking about. Yeah. I, yeah. I get that. So context is very important. But what's so hard, I think, I mean, I've spoken out there, I've spoken in Kansas, Nebraska. What's so hard is the is to wrap your mind around well, Rick, we only get ten inches of rain a year. Why would you expect me to plant another a crop out here that's not going to make me any money and going to take all my moisture away? That's what's so hard to overcome.
1: Mm-hmm. It it is, and and you know, frankly, you know, the one of the answers or maybe the question back has to be, you know, if you only got ten inches of rain, you probably should be in a perennial system anyway. Yeah. Well. <laughs> It's, it's very, very risky to be growing cash grain crops because it takes about half the moisture that a plant needs to grow all of the vegetation. And it takes the other half to get it all the way out to full grain fill. Yeah. Some years you only have half the rainfall. So you can grow a nice vegetative crop and never harvest a kernel of grain.
0: Never put the fruit on,
1: yeah. But again, if you're in a largely livestock-based operation, then you know, and and you've heard Gabe say this. You know, there's never a failure with livestock because you can yeah. always go graze it. You've it may not ask. be as much as what you wanted, but but that is your plan B. And and so, uh, you know, for the guys with the livestock, the integration of this becomes much easier. And then again, I think one of the logical steps is to consider should some of this be going back to you know some some well managed, highly intensively managed perennial systems. I'm not talking about. Just seeding it to Brome grass and putting two cows, you know, per 20 acres out there. Yeah. Highly managed intensive rotational grazing can be very productive uh in in those very low rainfall areas. You know, the the our friends down in Mexico, the Chihuahua Desert, you know, Alejandro and those guys, they're doing incredible things down there and they get six and eight inches of rainfall. Yeah. It can be done
0: yeah it's crazy what the cattle can just bring a whole new dynamic to the whole si- the whole system mm-hmm. so um i'm gonna go i'm gonna try your name here I, I, i'm gonna do it because you've, you've you've come in again i'm gonna go with uh Mila. i hope i got that right now ukraine has over 500 metric tons of johnson sioux bioreactors set up by small and medium-sized farmers Do you happen to know what this number could be like in the united states
1: wow i i don't have a guess i mean so 500 million tons so basically like if you were to do you know one shuttle you know one of those four foot by four foot by four foot yeah because that's yeah. what a lot of people do it in you, a, maybe you get a ton in there if you're like
0: well, that's what we've got. That's the exact thing we've got those going right now. It's, it's about 2,000 pounds. Yep.
1: That's so when that you hard. you'd have to have 250 million of those. There's no way it's even close to that. No. No way.
0: Ukraine has over 500 metric tons.
1: Oh, 500 metric tons, not 500. Okay. No, 500 metric tons. 500. Okay. So that's like 250 of those. Uh, yeah. I read that wrong. So I don't know. I would guess. I, I would know. say
0: yes. We've got more than that.
1: Uh, five, 10,000 people doing it. Maybe yeah. I, I really don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll, it's have, to, we'll have to
0: get Dr. Dr. Johnson on and ask him.
1: Yeah. Make sure you get his wife on too. She's, she's very, very entertaining and really yeah. smart lady. So she's, she's a real joy to visit with. But, you know, the, the beauty of that system is it's so simple that anybody can do it with a very minimal investment, everything in your backyard, the biggest thing you have to invest is your time. Yeah. But there's tons of YouTube videos to watch about how, how to do it. Uh, you know, so it takes time to put it all together and then you have to be patient because you got to let it cook for a year. Yeah. yeah. But when it's done right, it can be very effective and, and, Again, if you watch any of these Peter Zeihan, any of his stuff, basically what he talks about is how the fertilizer crisis that that we just got a glimpse of this year is going to become huge as we move forward into these next years. And every other agriculture producing country in the world is much more susceptible to it than the United States because we either manufacture most of our fertilizer here or we get it from Canada yeah but the other countries are highly dependent upon russia ukraine and china yeah and that's not going to be reliable suppliers moving forward so they need to have 500 million tons of that going because every farmer needs you know five or six of those uh because they're going to have to come up with other ways to get their fertility uh and, and not just there but everywhere uh you know natural gas is so expensive in europe they've really shown how much nitrogen they're making and and i mean that's a huge deal that's i just
0: read today that yara which is the largest nitrogen producing company in europe is going to decrease their output by 25 percent because of the high price of natural gas
1: yeah it's like expensive than it is here that's a big deal it's a big deal it's a really big deal so you know there there's going to be there's going to be more people looking for alternatives like that. And and I say the reason I like that one, it's simple. It's a, it's a, it's a DIY, you know, do it yourself at home kind of a deal. You can use the materials right from your own backyard. Now you got to plan ahead because you got to have that out there and it doesn't take, you know, people think, well, if I have to spread two tons of compost per acre, you know, I'd have to have thousands of these things out there. Well, that's not the case you know dr johnson says that two pounds of that compost per acre is all you need when you're when you're extracting the biology into a liquid and then you're spraying the liquid on the on the ground you're not you're not spreading the compost and everybody has liquid application equipment or almost everybody yeah that's way easier than spreading compost anyway yeah
0: yeah uh you know, and let's just stay right here on this input question that's going to, or the conundrum that's coming. So now we need to shift back to you, the guy who can supply us these cover crops. We need to be implementing more of these legume packages into these. even if you're a, a, a traditional type farmer, you need to be starting to grow your own nitrogen here. So and we've got to be doing this, Keith.
1: yeah. Yeah, that's right, and you know, it, it's, a, it, it's a it's a it's conundrum because sometimes people don't want to spend the money up front, to, you know, because the legumes are expensive. You know, legumes yeah. are low seed yielders. That's why soybeans are usually two and a half times as much as corn. It's because they yield about two and a half times as much as corn, and so you just yeah. you're going to get somebody to grow them. You have to be willing to pay up, and it's no different for clover or vetch or peas or anything else and so they're expensive seeds uh, but with dollar a pound nitrogen all of the sudden those look like a much better bargain than they did when you could buy nitrogen for 50 cents
0: I've got let me see if I can do so I got something here I want to show you okay I do all kinds of testing on the farm I don't know if you can read can you read that can you see where my finger is Yep. 262 pounds of nitrogen was fixed through Balanza fixation clover. That, so that's then, incredible. Let's assume now, Keith, for a moment that we can only get to half the microbes can only make half of this available in the next 30 days. So at 130 pounds at a dollar a pound and dollar you're being generous at a dollar a pound, I think it's closer to a dollar11, but at a dollar a pound that's 130 bucks i can afford to put out five pounds of balanza clover to get that back
1: well and look at your other two numbers there too
0: yeah look at the k look at the k2o and the and the calcium p205 i mean all it's just endless here what this what you can see on this thing yeah and and what really gets me keith is from june 4th to june 8th so in four days it's geometric i mean it just explodes
1: yeah. You've seen yep. it. Yep, I have. Now now there's a couple things though that people have to realize on this, and again, it's all about timing. You can't be harvesting soybeans October 20th and expect oh. to have that happen. That That's has to go in the ground early September.
0: That came behind a cereal grain.
1: Yes. And so that,
0: that was not double cropped is what what's Dave Brant call it?
1: Greedy beans.
0: There were no greedy beans involved.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, but people that are unwilling to break out of a pure corn soybean rotation are not going to be able to get those kinds of numbers unless they're far enough South, you know, you get far enough South and you may have enough growing season to do that. But most people in the corn belt are not going to be able to do that unless you have a summer harvested crop of some kind in the rotation And it doesn't have to be every year. You know, it doesn't even have to be once every three years. You can do it, I think, once every five years and it will have huge implications for your system.
0: Yeah, and and what we've got to understand here, or even like I talk about, Keith, I talk about a region year where we take it out of production the whole year. And it's not a zero because you're gaining soil health, you're gaining uh, organic matter, you're gaining carbon, you're gaining aggregate stability, water infiltration, all this stuff you're gaining. It's not a zero, and then look at the setup you've got for the next cash crop you have in mind.
1: Yeah, and if done right, and I know you do this, you can take that regen year and run cattle on there and probably produce seven or 800 pounds of beef per acre and still have all the benefits, maybe even more if they're properly managed. And I say properly managed because you can't just turn a bunch of cows out on some acres. Have good fences and keep them inside, and think that you're doing a good job managing livestock. It, you've got to rotate them through. Right. You've got to allow that those plants to regrow and not get nibbled on again. You know, every day by that cow. So it, it takes some work, takes some infrastructure. But again, once you're once you get that, you know, that's that's where some magic can really start happening. And again, Gabe and, and Jay Fuhrer up there, you know, they bought that Minokin farm one of the worst farms in the whole county their conservation district and this is the coolest thing if if every state had a a Minocan type farm or dakota lakes research farm it would be incredible because they buy at this old worn out farm and they basically just went in doing just what you said a regen type year where they just planted you know mm-hmm. two uh iterations of diverse cover crops properly grazed them and they literally brought that farm back to life in a year or two. And, and it was one of the most productive farms around. And now they're mm-hmm. using it. The, the whole thing is totally set up as a huge educational lab. Yeah. So if awesome. you've never been up there, that, that is definitely a place you need to go and tour. And they have field days every year. Uh, but it's just a great teaching tool to show the power of regenerative ag.
0: Yeah, I know. I need to get up there. I've, I've not been. And I need to get him on the podcast um that that'd be awesome yeah okay uh steve uh fall can be difficult to get a cover crop established to maximize biomass i grow corn and beans any ideas for a cover crop planted in early april cereal rye or winter wheat steve can you tell us where where you are located at please
1: yeah and while while he's typing that in there i i would say that it's it's very much a big misconception that it's too late in the fall to plant a cover crop yeah it is very true it's going to be too late to plant most things I don't think it's ever too late to plant cereal rye I would way rather plant cereal rye in December than to plant oats in April yeah at west of Chicago so you know I think west of Chicago you could still plant cereal rye at Thanksgiving time but oh, you're not yeah. going to see it in the fall but I promise you it will germinate. I say it will germinate at 34 degrees. And when the, when it starts warming up in the spring, that stuff will take off like gangbusters and it will, it will outgrow anything you could plant in the spring. You know, whether it be oats or barley, spring planted rye, you know, you're way better off getting it in, you know, even in late November to do that. So That'd be my recommendation. And then start, start playing around, you know, with, okay, let's take five acres and let's throw some hairy vetch out there and see what that does. Let's, let's, let's take part of a field and, you know, let's go to a, a 95 day corn. You know, yeah. there's a really high production productivity uh, numbers that are real short season. Let's put the shortest season that we think we can do. Let's plant that first harvested a little wet even and right there you you've just picked up 3 weeks right over your other harvest and that's and right. now plant that and now see what it does so you know do some things like that on small scale small trials you don't have to replicate it you don't have to capture all this data your eyes are going to tell you whether or not it's something that is worth doing on a larger scale and if it doesn't work great that's fine you know yeah. and i've heard gabe and many others say this too if you don't fail at two or three things every year, that means you haven't tried enough things. Now you can't afford to fail on a thousand acres. You would be foolish to do that, but you can afford to fail on five acres or one acre or a 30 foot strip or whatever it is. Right. Uh, You got to figure out how to do your own research. We cannot rely on the universities. They are, they are, frankly, they're a long ways behind. I don't know that they're gonna catch up because their research models, it's very difficult for them to do the systems type research. And and frankly, I don't know that farmers necessarily need, you know, all of that, you know, scientific data. They need to see that it works and, and they're gonna be most convinced if they can see it work on their own farm.
0: Yeah. Well, we've got a big storm coming through at the moment. Hopefully I don't get cut off, we'll see. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right, Keith. You can't, you don't jeopardize the livelihood of your farm. You go out, you test on small acres. Um, totally agree, great advice, great advice. So Steve, I hope that was a help. And here, I want to tell you something else. And, and Steve, I, you can agree or disagree with me when I get through with my comment. I totally agree. You can plant rye, we, in 19, we didn't plant rye until January and we blew it all on top of frozen ground and it all grew germinated vernalized and came up got six feet tall put a head on did everything it was supposed to do but here's what I will say when we are now in this world that we live in and in the world that we live in with all organic no-till it's all got to be done with cover crop we see keith a huge difference between rye planted in september and i'm talking about next spring versus rye planted in october november december i mean it it you wouldn't think it would matter but it's a big deal in the spring as far as biomass and setting tillers and and all of these things that we now need in our operation because we need bomb we need ten thousand pounds every single year
1: yeah yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'm and, and please, you know, the audience, don't think that I'm saying that's the ideal time to plant rye. It's still better than doing something in April. But yeah. if it gets doing something in September, there's no comparison. Plus, right. then in September, then you can add the vetch. You can add some balanza. You can add some crimson. You can add winter peas. There's a number of different things you can do. You know, the earlier you can do that, the better. And again, that's where rotation is so important. Yeah. It's just going to be really hard to do this. It's going to be very difficult to go no or low inputs in strictly a corn bean rotation because you don't have that that's window right. of opportunity to have this cover crop grow for 90 days plus because that's where you're getting all those huge benefits of both nutrient cycling, nutrient availability, and, and nutrient fixation.
0: Yeah. Now, I'm going to, I want to go into a subject here that's going to be for people that are still using chemistry okay i'm going to make that we can't be taken out of context here we're going to talk a little bit about a thought i've got on termination of chemistry okay okay keith i think too many times we build these cocktails and all they are are annuals if you look down the list of species that these cocktails are built at 90% of them are annuals, or maybe even more. We've got to get diversity in these cocktails with perennials. We need to get grasses in there. We've got to get, you know, a, a chicory, uh, something that will give you serious diversity along with building soil health. But you've got to be terminating these chemically because you're not going to manage. You're not gonna manage chicory or rape or 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 Italian ryegrass mechanically. You're not gonna do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I think that there's some validity to there's certainly a determination issue, absolutely. I know that you and Dan and others have really struggled, you know, chicory is an awesome plant. Oh part of the please. reason it's awesome is because it's yeah you know, a huge root and it is tougher the nails once it's out there. And it goes deep, it
0: goes deep. I'll tell you, we've got a field north, uh, at the north end of our firming operation that is what I would call muck. It's black muck. You've got one chance in the spring, if you're on it too early, it's 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 softball cinder blocks, you know, the rest of the year. This field has gotten away from us on chicory. It, it's, it's, it's one of the two or three fields, you know the story. We. I brought chicory on because of the same conversation, but the year I brought it on is the year we did away with all chemistry on the rest of the farm. (laughs) And this stuff is, I mean, Keith, this ought to be a poster picture for chicory because this is a premier stand of chicory. I've never seen the field in better shape in my whole life of farming this field. It's incredible. Yeah. And sheep love it. I mean, you call up Ray Archuleta, Missouri, and he'd love to have uh, chicory growing on his, his acres for sheep to graze. So, yeah. but again, we've got to always be thinking about what is the end game here? What are we doing with these? It's great to plant 16 species, but how are you going to handle each and every one of those species that's in that cocktail? So we gotta be careful.
1: Yeah, and, and that's where again the termination strategy plays a huge role in what you do. But for people that are a little worried about that, again, that's where the beauty of a summer harvested crop like wheat can come in, is I can design you a fifteen way blend that you can plant after wheat harvest and it's all gonna winter kill. Yeah. Won't all die at the frost, but it will all die before it gets through the winter. And that's that's a huge win. That's big. I, I get all of this benefit of growing. I've got warm season, cool season, grasses, legumes, broadleaf brassicas. i got some that die at the first frost. It opens it up. My radishes take off, and they're going to grow till Thanksgiving time or whatever. But then it all winter kills. And then come next spring, I've still got good thatch out there. I'll probably have some volunteer wheat coming or rye or whatever I grew, and that's okay. So I've got, still got something green growing. But for the most part, my termination has been taken care of. And yeah. so I tell people this, you know, in Nebraska, you know, like a couple of years ago, and we hit 34 below zero, at least we're killing bugs and we're terminating our cover crops. Because we've got customers down in Texas, and they, some of these things that winter kill just easy as pie, you know, African cabbage for one, they say, oh yeah, we've got perennial cabbage down there. I was like, what? Well, I didn't know it would do that. It just... Yeah. When it doesn't get cold enough and so as you go south you have to be more careful of that. But I'm talking about here, you know, in the Midwest and the primary corn belt, uh, you can do that. Now, if you've got chemical options then you can have things in overwinter. You could have some perennials. The thing about the perennials would be it's expensive and so I don't I don't think you should put them in unless you've got a growing window. That is going to be able to take advantage of them. And what I mean by a growing window, don't put a perennial in if you're only going to let this thing grow for 60 days. It makes no sense. Use yeah. Yeah. a cheaper annual. You'll get the same benefits in that window. But if it's something where you can grow 90 days, 100 days, maybe even over winter and grow in you know April and some of May, and then you're spraying it out, you know, like a red clover, red, you know, coming out Some of these these crops. It's sure worth taking a look at, and especially if you've got cattle, you know, you could even consider doing a whole perennial system for three years. You know, grass, uh, grass and forbs and legumes, you know, graze it for three years and then come back into crops. Probably will be the most productive field on your farm when you come out of that perennial system. Yeah.
0: Well, okay, let's go, let's go into another thought that i i talk about this but i don't do this and we probably should be doing this let's talk about mixing up a cocktail and base it on seeds per per pound versus pounds per acre okay so help me you know what i'm you know what i'm saying but explain that in a better method here what i'm talking about is building these cocktails Instead of putting out five pounds of balons fixation clover, we just need so many seeds per acre out there.
1: Yeah, that you know, when we we're building the smart mix calculator, that was something that we really struggled with. You wanna say hi to everybody? I wanna say I got I got grandkids wanting to steal my pretzels here. Ah, well, let's see who it is. Well, they're they're a little camera show. They're a little camera shy. You guys want to say hi?
0: No, but now Keith, there's, there's nothing better than
1: grandchildren. <laughs> no, we've got eleven of them. I don't have eleven here right now, but uh, um, all right. Why don't you guys go over there to eat them? Uh, so, <laughs> now, oh, the seeds.
0: Yeah, now, Keith. Let me let me say something, Keith, before you. Okay i was at my good friend dave Brant's last week i was with dave and and dave is in this mindset you know you know rick we only need a million million and a half seeds per acre that's all we need and if you look at clover a a, a lot of those clovers you put on two three pounds you're already at that that million seeds just with the clover and you still got 12 other things you want to add so his point is he's trying to figure out how to develop that cocktail that would be cheap for that farmer to plant, but still be very effective.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so the approach that we took on that and as we were developing the smart vex calculator, because some things, you know, like if you had a million seeds per acre on soybeans, that would be a complete disaster. Or on corn, different things have different seeding rates. And so what we did, is we go off what we call a percent of a full seeding rate. So we take each one of those crops and we say, this is what we think the full seeding rate for that would be. And and we some it's based on seed size and it's based on how that's going to react and act. So, so for clovers, it might be five pounds, six pounds, something like that. And then as you start putting things in, the calculator will determine, okay, a full seeding rate is 10. A full <laughs> seeding rate is 10 and you put one pound in, well, that's 10% of a full rate. And so then as you start adding things, the calculator will just add all those things up for you. And we want to shoot for about 125 to 150% of a full rate per acre. Okay. And, and so it that might be, if it's all large seeded stuff, that might be 700,000 seeds per acre. If it's a bunch of small seeded stuff, it might be 2 million. It's not perfect, but it's the best thing that we've come up with.
0: Yeah, I see what you're doing there. Oh that makes that makes sense. I, I get it now. Okay.
1: All right. And so so I don't I don't like in and, and NRCS is, you know, they're they they can only think in seeds per acre. Most farmers can only think in pounds per acre. We don't yeah. want them to think in either one of those. Think about percentage of a full rate of your overall mix. And if you're mixing a lot of warm and cool season things together, where you have things that are growing in distinctly different periods of time, then then you you can you can run that rate up higher. You can go two hundred percent. And if you're grazing, then you can go up quite a bit higher too. Hold hold on, just a second.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. And I'll, I'll go ahead and answer a question here that's directed right at me. Uh, hang on there's a lot of stuff coming in here I got to go back and find it this is from Steve how does your corn uh, Keith this is directed toward me so I'll answer this okay Uh, how does your corn look that was planted in the spring peas I'll tell you what it it looks awesome Uh, we do have a little bit of a weed problem coming now Uh, we we just didn't get the, the canopy to occur. You know, if you follow me, I talk about a 70-30 rule. We need 70% of the weed suppression to come from the cover crop and 30% to come from the, the cash crop canopy. Well, right now we've been, we've been getting these later rains in the season now, and my goodness, the weeds have exploded. Uh, but other than that, Steve, I am very pleased with the, the, spring, the spring pea notion in front of corn. And, and I'm gonna to talk to Keith later, Not, we can talk about it now. Uh, Keith's got a Wyoming pea that's been bred in Wyoming. Uh, I think this opens up huge opportunities for the folks in the northern part of the country that are colder than we are or out west. You plant these as late as you possibly can. I think you do anyway. We planted these in December and we bury them as deep as we can, three inches deep and you hope they survive the winter then they're going to come out early next spring and take off while you're waiting for your fields to dry and then you can come in and no-till corn into these peas i I love this notion now we did not get any of our peas to survive the winter i did not plant any of keese wyoming's this past fall and i should have but we didn't
1: they they didn't survive either it's you know our production fields of those it was a combination of being so dry where they were planting them and then a very cold open winter. It was a, yeah. it was a year for production on peas.
0: Yeah, uh, we got a lot of stuff piling in here, Keith, for comments or questions. Let me see if I can I can get weight through this here. Uh, okay, Chester Crow. for organic farmers, I've heard not all markets will accept wheat having volunteer cereal rye. Am I being overly cautious about failing to 100% terminate cereal rye and hurting my summer cash crop? That's a great question.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's legitimate. And if you've got a market for that wheat where there's low or no tolerance for cereal rye, then, then that's definitely a different deal. You know, uh, you may have to not use cereal rye. You might use triticale, which would be similar. It's half rye, half wheat. That it's going to have a a better rip system than regular wheat. If you have triticale, if you have volunteer triticale in your wheat, they're not going to be able to tell that it's just going to look like an odd shaped wheat kernel. And so, that would probably be where I would go. It's not going to be quite as aggressive as rye, it's not going to be as early break in dormancy, uh, but it's still going to be pretty good. And you know, if you are, you know, in most rotations, if you've got rye as a cover crop and you're chemically terminating Mm -hmm. it. And you're not coming back to wheat for a couple of years, there's generally not a big issue there. If you're coming right back in the next year, or if you're taking that rye out for grain harvest, you'll have volunteer issues for a long time. Yeah. Or if you don't get it all you know, if you do a roll roller crimp and ten percent of it comes back and makes a little bit of a head That's what uh, we're doing. Then you'll have volunteer rye for a long time.
0: We've got volunteer rye in every field. It's just it's just part of the game now. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I hope again. I hope I got this right. Ludmila. She hasn't. She hasn't yelled at me yet. So I hope I'm getting that right. Okay. Keith, in Ukraine, more and more farmers use temporary companion crop mixes to get winter killed when they plant canola. Most common components are buckwheat, fenugreek, burseye clover, flax, lupins in Europe, such canola companion mixes are often referred to as coles effects. Could it be an opportunity for green cover seed?
1: (laughs) could be. Uh, We don't have guys necessarily doing this in their canola fields, but we've got some guys doing it in wheat fields. In fact, I'm putting together a mix right now. End up to a guy in Michigan, he's gonna plant it on like 900 acres and it, we've got like six things in there we've got some clover we've got some spring lentils we've got some flax he's got a little buckwheat uh we've got radishes it's all going to winter kill and but it's going to be really diverse you know and, and we can handle quite a bit of competition in the fall you just don't want it out there in the spring and so okay. it's the same concept just with a different crop uh, but yeah idea. absolutely you could do that
0: now oh, that's a great idea and and Ludmila, if you don't mind, would you please let us know where you're from? I, I love all your your, your commentary here. Um, so Keith, let me ask you this. Do you have Do you have sophisticated enough cleaning equipment that if we put 16 species together and ran them through your cleaners, could you separate them back into their 16 parts?
1: <laughs> well, no 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 uh, okay but if you're growing two or three things together can we pull that apart most likely okay uh, most likely here's what i'm
0: thinking here's what i'm thinking here this is my, my brain just went off here now maybe this won't work but if you've got i mean you've got the history of what's left your door as far as mixes are concerned you could probably come up with what are the top seven species that go into every mix what do you think about growing those seven together and already creating that mix, and then letting them grow as a diverse system in those uh, in those southern Canadian prairies or wherever you have this stuff growing?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thought. Uh, part of the problem is they wouldn't all feed mature mature. at the same time, and so yeah. you have you, you would want to kind of you'd probably be better off doing a couple different groupings of three or four things. If you really want to harvest the seed, because now I can match up uh, harvest windows. I can match up heights. I can do all yeah. those things and just kind of do a little bit more of an intelligent type thing for an actual cash grain harvest. Now, when it comes to being able to take that mix and sell it, uh, It would get a little bit tricky with the federal seed labeling laws. Oh, okay. Uh, I think we could still do it. You would have to, uh, you would have to, you know, know exactly what's in it. You'd have to germ test each component of the, of the mix, which, which you could do. Um, The, the, the biggest thing would be is will that, will that distribution of the mixture be consistent across the whole field and within that whole bin? So that if yeah. I'm selling you part of this mix, what I have on the label is accurate. But if I sell, you know, a month later out of a different part of the bin, that, that's where some of the trickiness would come. Just it, and, and those are all legal requirements to have that label truly represent what's in the bag.
0: Sure. sure. Well, I was just trying to, you know, trying to, again... You know, we're talking about monocultures, but if you've got a guy hired to just grow buckwheat, that's a monoculture. So I was just thinking about how we could try yeah. to get some of this stuff together. But I, I get it.
1: I and, get it. And we're we're working towards doing a lot more polyculture, you know, but more two things, oats and peas together, yeah. rye and vetch together. Yeah. We're already buying, you know, Derek Axton and others up in Canada very successfully doing chickpeas and flax together, Uh, canola and peas, mustard and peas. Peas are a good companion crop for a lot of different things. Yeah, And they're big seeds, so they're easy to clean out of something else that's in there. So that makes it really nice, too. So I think that you will see more and more and more of this. And In fact, we started pushing on this quite a bit harder, uh, and we got a lot of pushback, actually, when we talked about oats and peas, because most of the oats that we grow are certified seed oats. Because the best varieties are the newest varieties, and they're protected through you know South Dakota or North Dakota or the two main states developing new oat varieties, so you have to grow those as certified seed, which means you know the inspectors have to come out, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we pitched the idea of this to the seed improvement uh, uh, groups in South Dakota and Nebraska and Kansas, saying, "Hey, we want to do this," right? And, and nobody wants to work with us on it because they say. Well, if you grow oats and peas together, our inspectors can't walk through the fields to inspect the oats field. That's, that's insane. <laughs> so that's that's and 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 we will find more and more of that as we push some of these things to the envelope. Uh, that some of these the 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 certifying government uh, and you may even see this with some of your organic type things. They don't know what to do with some of this new stuff. They only know what to do with what does the book say. Yeah, and, and no farmer farms by the book. I'm sorry.
0: And and see, and you make an excellent point. I'm, let, let me go ahead and expand on that a little bit. When you're organic, or when you are organically certified, and let's assume that you're going to follow some of the things we do, and you go out and you plant your winter wheat in November like we do. And then you come in next spring and you no-till peas into that wheat and you plan on harvesting both of those together in the fall. You have to tell your your certifying agency that you are growing both crops, because if you don't, they're only going to let you do one or the other. And then you got to get them separated out. So if you make an excellent point. You've got but but Keith, this is the future to, to co-mingle these cash crops together. This is where it's all going to be. Yeah, I, I, that's what I think.
1: Yeah, and you know, and I, I told you that you know we don't have the technology to separate those sixteen things out, but you know what, with, with the technological advancements in color sorters that have come in the last five or ten years, yeah, another ten years if that if that level of improvement and the cost comes down on that, I could see a machine in 10 years, maybe not that long even, where it is looking at each individual seed, it's looking at the color and the shape, and it's spitting it in one of sixteen different directions.
0: Yeah.
1: Now yeah. would probably be a slow process, but it's it's just computing power and that's getting faster and bigger and cheaper every single day. Right. So down the road, we absolutely could do something like that. I just don't know that we have that technology now to do that very effectively or efficiently.
0: Well, we got, we got a reply back from Ludmila. She is a Ukrainian expat living in Charleston, South Carolina. Well, good evening. Thanks for joining us tonight. Um, we've got a, a question from Ken. Belong to clover after winter wheat in southern Ontario, 44th parallel. Next crop, corn. How many pounds per acre of seed planting on July 25th, ample rain and first frost, end of September would you recommend?
1: So it's a question, how many pounds of clover
0: would I plant? Yes, I, I, that's, a, that's what I'm gathering, yes. Balanza clover after winter wheat on the 44th parallel.
1: Well, first of all, I would not plant the balanza by itself. I would definitely get some oats in there with it. I'd maybe throw a pound of radishes in. just give it, give, give it some diversity. But all these things that would die out and not, you know not be competition in the spring <clears throat> so i would look at that but uh i mean you know five six pounds is going to be a full rate of balanza don't you think rick yeah. i mean you you oh, yeah. plant you plant a lot of balanza yeah
0: that's plenty five's plenty i like the oats uh 20 to 30 pounds of oats mm-hmm. uh, if you're going to do this on july 25th my guys sorghum sudan uh radish cow peas sun, buck hemp, buck sun, sunflower buckwheat Throw it all in there and everything we just mentioned will all be gone next spring, except for whatever legumes you go with. Yeah. Honestly, I'd probably go with three pounds of balanza clover and three pounds of a hairy vetch.
1: And, and then all these other things, you do not want those in large quantities because you don't want to completely shade out that clover and vetch coming on. So you might only do a pound of sorghum sedan, but you'd have some out there. You, a pound yeah. of radishes, a uh, you know, two pounds of buckwheat. I I do a half a pound of sunflowers. I mean, you know, there's no better, cheaper, deep root than a sunflower, and, right. and they're gonna die out when you get 27, 28 degrees. So be a lot of things you could do there, but yeah, I would build it around the legume package and then diversify it with things that are gonna drop out as you get colder.
0: Yeah. Okay, so Keith, we got more questions, but I got one right now that that I get asked all the time. So, okay, we've gone to your calculator, we've built this thing, we called you uh, or called somebody in your organization up and we're gonna put a 10-way package together and we've got got clovers in there, we've got vetch in there, we've got radish in there, very small seeds, shallow depth, and we're gonna add, uh, winter peas to it. What's our planting depth? How do we handle the small seeds and the big seeds? How do we do that?
1: Yeah, well, a couple strategies. If you have a drill with two boxes, you got the small seed box and a large seed box. You can have them separate. Yeah, we can keep them separate for you. Basically, you're buying two mixes instead of one. Yeah. Uh, now. That drill just became twice as complicated to calibrate because so now you got to calibrate two boxes and not one. So keep that in mind too. Yeah. And so that that will help with the separation issues. Now we're big believers in if you have a diverse enough mix, separation is rarely an issue, especially if you have something like oats or buckwheat in there, things that are. Odd shapes, odd angles. Yeah. Round round seed separates so much quicker than things that are weird shapes. And and like oats has that rough haul on it, right. you know, barley has a hull on it, and so it just it just doesn't let things move as much. So first of all, you can keep them all mixed together in one box and and do a pretty good job not separating. Now on on the seeding depth, uh, again, some people have might have an air seater with two ranks and, you know, you can have one box go to this rank and another box go to this rank. And I can yeah. set this rank up here at half an inch and this one back here at, you know, inch and a half. If you have that, great. Take advantage of that and use that. But that's 3% of the farmers around probably. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It's a low number. Most yeah. people have that luxury or that option. So you're going to be putting it in one box and planting it at one depth. So so the approach that we take on that is we don't go as shallow as what the smallest seed wants, and we don't go as deep as what the deepest seed wants. We shoot for somewhere in the middle, probably leaning a little bit more to the shallow side. So, you know, a lot of mixes, we would recommend guys to plant it at about three quarters of an inch. You know, a little clover seed would be just fine and happy at a quarter of an inch. And if you planted balanza clover at three quarters of an inch and nothing else it may struggle to get out of the ground but when you have all these other things you have the oats you have the peas you have the sunflower you have the radish those seeds have enough energy stored up in that seed they can physically lift and break open that seed trench and that's that's what the little seeds are lacking the energy to do that and then those little seeds just kind of come right along beside and they 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 follow them right up because they're no longer happen to do the lift by themselves again yeah. just think about it you know it's it's that's why god made diverse communities of people because we each have different strengths and different talents yeah. and we work well together and, and plants do the same thing and so the more diverse the mix the less issue that is uh the the biggest the biggest time when that really comes into being an issue or a problem and you mentioned it earlier with your winter peas if you're trying to get some sensitive seeds to overwinter those have to be planted deeper. Yeah. And so you're not going to be able to plant your winter peas and your balanza clover together because those peas want to be in 3 inches deep and that clover would be fine at half an inch. Yeah. So that's if you're doing some things like that that's where you may have to think through either separate boxes or separate passes through the field. But for most mixes you don't have to do that just you kind of shoot for somewhere in that middle range and uh they'll come up pretty well
0: yeah and again uh, you know i liked it you've got to listen to the people that are around you and i was like i said earlier i was with dave brandt last week dave said exactly the same thing keith plant your stuff a little deeper than you think that pea is going to come out and pull that clover with it and give it that avenue to get out exactly correct exactly Mm -hmm. All right, again, Uh, Dr. Christine Jones, and I want to come back to her in a minute. Dr. Christine Jones was raving about a young Aussie farmer who grew a great winter wheat crop with a mix of 18 species as a temporary companion crop and did not have to use herbicides or insecticides. Uh, Peas and oats were at 70 to 30 seed count ratio works in Ukraine. Optional plus one kilogram per hectare of a winter. Brassica helps with insect pressure.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think she's talking about peas and oats as a cash crop together. Yeah. Or as yeah. a forage crop, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, and I wanna come back to Dr. Jones here because folks, Keith and his company also do a webinar series and they have a wonderful it was a four-part series they had with dr jones and i think it was last year in 21 and you've got to listen to all four and by the way keith give it it's great it greencover.com is that the website
1: greencover.com is the website yep
0: yeah go to the website you you look it up find the, the webinars go through the catalog and you're gonna there's two in there in particular from dr jones I've never met her. I'd love to get her on the podcast. I hope I can someday, but she's got a nitrogen one and a phosphorus one. And she also, and what are the other two, Keith? Do you remember?
1: I'm posting them here right now. Yeah, I can't think what's called Secrets of the Soil Sociobiome. Yeah, there you go. And the other one, um, what did we call that? It,
0: it, yeah, but the point is, this is a tremendous lady. She's from Australia. She has been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, these webinars that Keith did with her were absolutely mind blowing. When you're done with the nitrogen episode, she will tell you how to raise corn without any synthetic nitrogen. We just have to build the proper cocktail mixes together. And it, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. So Keith posting that now, let's get to another, we got a couple more questions here. Um, yeah, the nitrogen solution and the phosphorus paradox, yes. Yeah. Um, and secrets of the soil. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful uh, episodes. Um, well, Well, Keith, we've we've gone, we've gone about an hour and a half here. Um, This has been awesome. Um, Let's talk a little bit. I I, want to, I don't want to, I don't want to hold you too much longer, but we got to get to another important thing here. And I know we're running late on time in the growing season in the country, but, but tell us a little bit about supply I mean there's going to be supply issues I mentioned it at the beginning you've got a lot of growers that are in these arid parts of the United States right now. What do you think I mean how how critical are some of these species that we need to be getting booked up now?
1: well you know this is as tight of supply as we've seen in the 14 years we've been in the business. And, and several things have come together to make this happen. Number one, nitrogen prices went through the roof, and that put a lot of pressure on the legume market. So clovers and vetches and peas, very tight because of... That's good. That's good. It is good. Now, it comes on the heels of a lot of these crops are grown in the Pacific Northwest. They had one of the absolute worst years they've ever had. Last year, they were very dry, very hot you know, 114 degrees or whatever in Seattle. I mean, it was it was oh. just unprecedented for them. And so they had a very short core crop. And a lot of times what we plant now is what was grown last year. Okay, so You always see that like, now they had probably more of a normal year this year, but with increased demand, a normal year, it's still going to be short crop. So Uh, we're seeing that in addition it's probably the worst production year that we've ever had with our contract grower network we probably we contract about 25,000 acres of seed crops with you know dozens and dozens of farmers across about eight or ten different states and and we had more loss this year to drought winter kill and hail than than we've ever had and so you know we only produced 25% of the Elbon rye bushels coming out of Oklahoma and Kansas that that we wanted. Uh, Most of our winter peas died. We had almost 4,000 acres of hairy vetch that didn't survive the winter. I mean, we would have been the vetch kings of the country if we could have produced all that, And, and now we're out begging to find some because, you know, our production failed. So we need to do a better job getting more acres, getting it more diversified, figuring out, you know, maybe we need to go to more irrigated. I don't know. Um, so just lots of things coming together, poor production, high demand, poor last year. Uh, and and then, you know, so far we've been able to get trucks to haul stuff. They're expensive, oh but if
0: goodness. you're
1: willing to pay the money, you can still find trucks. It's, yeah. it's, it's going to cost. And yeah. so uh so, with all that being said, the things that we're really of, we're basically out of Elbon rye, pretty good supply of the Dakota rye yet. Uh, and you're shaking your head because you know the benefits of Elbon being a real early maturing, early heading, good for roller crimping, all that. Um, the the vetches and clovers, uh, like the Frosty Versim, zero production this year. They're trying to grow some out in South America so oh we can gosh. have some in spring, but that's that's just not here fixation we're finally getting new crop fixation Balanza. that's the balanza clover that you were talking about we're finally getting that clean we'll start taking shipments of that uh hopefully monday will be a truckload of that coming in crimson clover had gotten really short and tight but now the new crop mar- is coming on the market so i i suspect crimson will be okay winter peas are very tight uh again not a lot of people are growing winter peas and just a lot of people that grew winter peas they they just didn't make it you know because in order yeah. to get through the winter they have to get some fall establishment and if there's no moisture there's no fall establishment right so it was kind of the kind of the one two punch there that did a lot of those in brassicas no no real issues there radishes turnips collards rapeseed those are all in pretty good shape um, winter oats and winter barley very very tight to uh, non existent on those crops yeah. Um, so Triticale, we grew more Triticale than we've ever grown and, and we'll probably be sold out in 10 days. Um, and a lot of that is because, you know, hay prices are historically high right now. You know, guys are paying 200 bucks a ton for not really great quality hay. Triticale is a fantastic hay producer. And so there's lots of people wanting to plant that to try to build up their hay stocks for next year. And so that's put a lot of Pressure on that, yeah,
0: yeah. We'll get to that comment there in just a moment. Lu comment that that's that's pretty good. Go ahead and finish your thought there, Keith.
1: Yeah, uh, so you know, I there's still seed available. So wherever you buy your seed, I get a hold of them because they're. Your, your selections of what you can get are going to become more and more limited as, as we move into September. So, yeah. uh, you know, most people wouldn't wait until three days before they plant their corn to go buy their corn seed. Right. Uh, with cover crops, that tends to be what people do. And so one of the, that we need to break that habit and we need to get people in the habit of, you know, Steve Groff says this, you know, you need to treat your cover crop like your cash crops yeah plan them, plan them like like you mean it and be getting that seed ordered ahead of time and, and really be paying attention to the details
0: yeah that's and, and,
1: right and they will respond and so you know we do have to get people into thinking about that and and not just uh oh i'm going to call up and see who has it and i can come pick it up tomorrow right yeah
0: totally agree um so let's see what Lou Mila's got here. Keith, Keith really needs to get Dr. Jones to talk about the role of the seed microbiome, because each seed has tens of millions of microbes that define such important aspects as drought drought resistance. Because when Keith sells cover crop seeds grown regeneratively, regeneratively the seed microbiome is much more rich, diverse, and resilient than that of the seeds grown conventionally by competition. It's exactly correct. Exactly
1: yeah. correct. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. And we, you know, the vast majority of our seed is grown by our customers. Uh, so that does give us an advantage trying to figure out how we can, you know, have that be a, a little bit of a premium. So we can pass a premium onto the regenerative growers because it is a better product. Unfortunately, you know, the, the testing of some of this stuff is, is really uh, lacking Now, there are some new tests out there. Uh, biomakers, trace genomics are both doing D- DNA sequencing of both yeah. seeds and soil. And so there's going to be some things like that coming online that will help us identify some of this. But uh, if you haven't watched the, the webinar um, with, um, oh, now his name escapes me, uh, the rhizophage, Dr. James White. Oh, yeah. Uh, he talks about the, 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 the seed microbiome probably as well as anybody does. And in fact, Christine Jones uh, often quotes James White in some of the stuff that she talks about.
0: Yeah. I was fortunate enough to see a couple weeks ago in California and he was there before me. Wow. Wow. He, he absolutely had everyone on the edge of their seat about this concept he's got. And and Dr. Uh, uh, Chris Nichols was there also, and she was just totally flabbergasted by what his his uh, results were showing. So it's great, yeah. Well, we, had,
1: we had him do a webinar too, and that's I posted that one right there. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know what, Keith, you got you got your beautiful grandchildren with you. We're gonna let you go here. Um, Let's see, Ludmila. I have a PhD in functional genomics from Ohio State University, and have set up a set have set up several biomedical CLIA sequencing labs. It's not hard. There you go.
1: I can't even pronounce that. How can that not be hard?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ludmila. Please join us next week. Uh, great, great conversation, everyone. Thank you. Keith, let's uh, take us home here, if you would. Give us closing thoughts, comments. Um, this, this, you know, a few years back, people would have said all oh, these cover crops are a fad. They're they're not going to stick around. That's not the case. Th- this is this is real. Uh, give us your what you think. Take us home.
1: Yeah. So we we think that you know we're investing a lot of money and inventory and infrastructure and buildings and people, you know, we're, we'll be approaching 60 employees here uh, pretty quickly. We got two different locations in Nebraska and Kansas, uh, several other strategic partnerships across the country. We think this thing can really take off and grow partly because it works agronomically, but also because what could be better for the environment? And so, so Rick, tell me one other thing in this world where just about everybody can come to the table and say, you know what, that regenerative ag thing, that's a pretty good idea. Farmers can get on board with it because they've seen it work. You know, your, your environmentalists can get on board with it because they see what it can do to the environment, you know, both from a carbon fixation, as well as, you know, low inputs means low pollution. Politicians can get, get on board with it because again, you know CO2 is not a problem it's it's plant food and if they want to pay us to take it out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil which is what we need to be doing anyway to improve our soil yeah. if they want to pay us for it well great the yeah. best farmers are going to do that regardless and so the consumer they can get on board with it because it's going to be producing a healthier better product and we had uh, you know, Steve Groff on a webinar recently talking about the, you know, the nutrient density and the vegetables that he's producing and Dan Kittredge and the work that he's doing with the bionutrient density uh, project that he's got going. There's some exciting things happening. And, and I think that as the, but the thing that's going to have to drive it forward, Rick, the government can't drive this. You cannot incentivize farmers to do this. You can incentivize them to try it, but they'll never stick with it. The yeah. market has to drive it. And, okay. and in order for the market to drive it, the consumer has to be willing to pay more for it. Right. And I promise you they would have no problem doing that if they had confidence that that was a better product. And that's going to come when we get better You know, in the hand, in your cell phone. You got an app on your cell phone where you can scan your produce or scan that beef or scan that chicken and it's right. going to give you a nutrient density profile that's coming and when that hits boy look out because that will fundamentally change it because now the market's driving it not the government yeah and that's the and only the, way it's going to work
0: yeah and there's no cheating at that point because if you're not doing this regeneratively it's not going to show up when you scan that you
1: yeah and if you happen. can scan it then who cares if it's organic or whatever else because right. the consumer is is looking at the readout. Yeah, yeah. If
0: you want to go to that side of the store that doesn't care about what the nutrient, then shop over there. But if you want to be on the healthy, you know, right here, it's all going to be right there. I, I t- totally agree.
1: Yeah, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time in agriculture, and uh, I'm, you know, we feel like we're in a good position. And the greatest thing is, is we meet so many cool people. You know, just like oh. many of the, you know, the audience that's on here, I recognize some of the names. You know, getting to meet you and just just so many other people, you'll find no better group of people than the regenerative ag people.
0: Totally agree. Totally agree. We're we're transparent and we'll lay it all out on the line every single time. Yep. Well, Keith, uh, I mean, it's this has gone by so fast, almost we're approaching an hour and forty-five minutes. Thank you, Keith. Um, Thank you. Let's do it again someday we will we will and good luck i mean i know this is high stress coming in you don't know where your products coming from for, or well you know where it's coming from you don't know how much yeah. i mean you just hang in there and um and thank you and please keep up all the good work because we're going to need a lot more of these cover crops
1: all right sounds good thanks everybody
0: thanks everybody good night bye-bye